This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Hello, I'm Casey Coomer. The book, Run Mitch Run, The Hard Decisions One Man Faced for the 2012 Presidential Election by Don Cogman. Don, how are you, sir? Great. Thank you for having me. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'm glad you're having a good time. Where are you from? Well, I'm originally from Oklahoma, but I now uh, spent uh, 30 years on the East Coast in Washington and New York, and I now live in Scottsdale, Arizona. How did you come to write this book, sir? Well, Mitch Daniels has been a friend of mine for uh, probably 35 years. We first met when each uh, one of us was working for a different U.S. senator in Washington. And throughout uh, his career and my career, we have uh, seemed to collaborate on on multiple projects. And so... uh, when an article appeared uh, in 2009 uh, in the Wall Street Journal, uh, an interview of him uh, by Kim Strassel, saying that a lot of people wondered if he would ever consider running for president, uh, that sort of sparked an idea and a phone call from me, and that's what started this whole process. And this is really sort of an inside look uh, at what it takes to run for president, how difficult that decision is, all the factors involved in it. And uh, we just thought it was an interesting story. Very nice. Who do you feel this book appeals to and why? I think it, uh, well, it, 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 uh, it appeals to political junkies, of course, uh, people who uh, are just interested in the political process, particularly at the presidential level, because it is a lot of um, sort of detail and hands-on uh, ideas on what you have to do to run for president. So I think from that standpoint... Uh, people who are interested in that subject will find it uh, to be an interesting behind-the-scenes look. Uh, I think it also um, is an interesting look at the very difficult decision that, that one has to make when contemplating uh, such a life, uh, life-changing decision, particularly uh, for the candidate, but also in many ways, maybe even more so for the family of the candidate. Uh, and so anyone, I think, who's interested in presidential politics or history and government will find uh, it sort of a, a, um, uh, a very detailed, interesting look at this process. What would you like readers to take away from this book? Well, uh, I think there are really a couple, two things principally. One, I, I, uh, if they don't know Mitch Daniels and they don't know his approach to government and his success as governor of Indiana and some of the ways that he would have applied that to the national scene, I I hope that they will have a greater appreciation for uh, the great contributions he's made and the kinds of things that he would have been interested in doing if he'd have made the decision to run. Um, But secondly, I hope also that um, it talks a little bit about the importance of maybe returning a little more civility to the political process. Uh, because it can be a very daunting environment. And I think in today's world, particularly with the 
the Internet and all the online <clears throat> social media aspects of our world today, uh, it can be an ugly process also. And I think in some ways it prevents good people, particularly their families, from ever wanting to really enter that uh, arena. So I hope that that one thing people will take away from it is that it would be important, I think, as a country to try to return a little more civility to the political process because we need good people to run for office. I completely agree. Is there a scene or a character that you'd like to highlight during this interview? Uh, no, really. It's about uh, it's about Mitch and his family. It's about the interplay of uh, trying to decide uh, what to do in terms of the decision. I, I tell people we had really two challenges with this with this pr- effort. One was to convince Mitch that he, in fact, had something unique to offer because it's something he never contemplated. Uh, he thought that when he ended his term as governor of Indiana that that would end his participation really uh, as a political candidate. So our first challenge was to convince him that a lot of people were really interested in him doing this, that he has something unique to offer. Uh, and we were reasonably successful at that. By the time we got to the end of the process, he, I think, had become convinced that this might be something he could do. The second challenge was the family, um, both his wife and his four daughters. And as I tell people, we didn't quite do as well with that one because uh, it was something that they simply didn't want to go through. It, it truly is a life-changing uh, decision because when you enter something like this, you enter with the idea that you would win. So it's not just the campaign, but at the end it is serving in the White House, which really is something that lasts for the rest of your life in terms of security issues and all the the public scrutiny that that, uh, that goes with that. So. Those are the principal, I think, challenges and the principal uh, areas of interest that people will read when they see this book. How would you introduce this book to a friend in a few sentences? It's about a a person who had a chance to become President of the United States and at the end of the day, uh, uh, in his words, said, I love my country, but I love my family more. And it's about that journey. Tell me how this book is unlike others with similar topics. What sets it apart? Well, I think the main thing that sets it apart is that he made the decision. It's about someone who made the decision not to run. And, uh, you know, most of the time these books are about somebody who goes through this and decides to become a candidate and either wins or loses. This is about a person who had tremendous momentum, tremendous support, had a lot of people thinking he would have been the the best general election candidate who made the decision not to run. So it's it's a little bit it's a little bit different than most books about presidential politics. Why did you choose this setting, presidential elections? Well, it's really it was about Mitch. I mean, it was about a it was about a an effort that I and 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 seven other people were very intimately involved in. So it's something, you know, I knew about. I I really helped start the effort with Mitch. I was sort of the the coordinator of our group, which was a very closely held group of old friends of his. And so, um, you know, I I wrote about it because I I really lived it and was was involved in it from the very beginning and and so knew all the ins and outs of what went into this decision. The book, Run, Mitch, Run, 
The Hard Decisions One Man Faced for the 2012 Presidential Election. The author, Don Cogman. Now, Don, in a few words, how would you describe this book? It's a book about um, what it takes to run for president, the details and all the activities and all the strategies and tactics that you have to think about. And it's a book about um, Mitch Daniels, the person and the process he went through to make this decision on whether or not to be a candidate for president of the United States. What was one of the most challenging parts about writing this book, also most fun and rewarding? Well, organizationally, it was just a difficult thing initially because it, it was a period of about two years, uh, and I had a voluminous amount of material both uh, that I had in my files, and so I first had to organize it by subject, and then I had to organize it chronologically. Uh, and because of uh, the Internet and online and the emails, I could basically do that almost down to the hour. And so the initial challenge was really how to organize this massive material into something that people could follow and read and be interesting to them. What were one of the most rewarding parts about writing this book? I suppose the most rewarding part was when I told Mitch that I had done it, and uh, he responded positively. Uh, I wasn't sure what he would think about doing something like this. And initially, we didn't, or I didn't even really think it might be a book. I just really did it for the people who were involved in it as sort of a piece of history that, that we could revisit. And uh, his response uh, to it was, look, uh, I think this is an important story to tell. So it was very rewarding that he felt like it was worth actually making a book out of it. That's really awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to highlight during this interview? I don't think so. I, I uh, it was uh, uh, people ask me uh, often why uh, why we uh, initially just decided to to do the story, and I and I just tell them that I uh, I had somebody tell me once that you know if you have the privilege of living a piece of history, you ought to write it down so that other people can share it in years to come, and that's really. I think why I did it. Uh, I think it has some very interesting aspects to this process. It it talks about how difficult and what a life-changing decision it is. And I think people who are interested in politics, who are interested in the presidential process, which we're now getting ready to enter, there are so many other people right now going through the same difficult decision-making process that mm -hmm. Mitch and his family went through. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just think there's some relevance uh, today and in future years uh, and I hope people find that it's an interesting story to read. Well, Don, where can we find your book? Uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, it's probably the best way to do it. Uh, also, the Barnes & Noble uh, link and a few other places. But I think probably it's more readily available on the Amazon site. The book, Run, Mitch, Run, The Hard Decisions One Man Faced for the 2012 Presidential Election by Don Cogman. Don, thank you very much for being here with us. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? 
right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lipman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With Baby and Toddler Instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Devils or Angels, the collection, Handsome Devil. And the author is Dan Robertson, and Dan joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dan. Hello, how are you? Great to have you with us. Uh, this is really uh, quite a think piece. Uh, it is a collection, as you say, because it deals with prose and poems, and we're going to talk a little bit about your short stories and have you read a couple of your poems to us in, uh, in a bit here. But first of all, just to kind of sum up your book, uh, you talk about your book, it's all about choices, decisions, and motives. So devils or angels, uh, a little bit of each and every one of us? I think that everybody has a little bit of, you know, a little bit of devil and angel in them because everybody has, maybe mostly good, but there's a little bit of bad things or bad choices that they can make at any time. And that's, that's, that's a good thing, actually, because if you don't have, um, if you don't make choices, you don't learn anything. Sometimes the, the problems that you run into and you overcome, that's when you find out you really learn the most. So can love and hate exist side by side? I think they can. I think, you know, you, even if you're talking about just a, a, in reality of a neighborhood, you can have someone that, that's really loving in maybe in one house, and the next house you'd have someone that, that hates. Because, it, but you don't know why the hate is there. You know, they know maybe, or maybe they don't even know. So sometimes you know we're, we're kind of brought through these problems, and we have to learn to, to overcome them because you know just the, just the way we react to them. Well, before we learn more about your book, Devils or Angels, Dan, tell us a little bit about your background and why you wrote the book. Well, I graduated from Sacramento State University. That's well, that's in California. That's in Sacramento. Um, with that, a Bachelor of Arts in Literature. But uh, I, I was a teacher for 45 years. I was going everything. I, I was trying to always encourage people to, to do their very best. And, but as I was going along, I also found out that there were a lot of things that I was, that sometimes I made mistakes too. That, you know, I didn't want people to, to know that, to think that if you make a mistake that, that you're stuck there. Because once you get to the place where you can, you know, you reach an obstacle and you, you can overcome it, that's when you really start growing. And I wanted, you know, the, I wanted my students to know that that's, that's when they were going to become Powerful, you know. They could take um, words, and and because I was in literature and in English at first, um, I wanted them to know that words are very powerful. And if and if 
if they use those words powerful, you know, if they use those words in a good way towards people, they can encourage people. If they use them in a bad way, they can destroy things. And I found out that just for myself, as a poet, I found out that I was wiser sometimes than I thought I was, than I normally thought I was. But I could see things pretty clear sometimes, and I could mix fantasy and reality, and and know. And, and sometimes it make me look like I really knew what I was doing, but I also made mistakes. I learned a lot from those mistakes. And the more mistakes I made, the wiser I became, I think. And if you make those mistakes, you know, you're, you're deciding your own fate when you make your choices and decisions based on those mistakes. If you feel, you feel guilty and you want to do something about it, you can. You're never, you're never stuck in the place where you're just damaged goods. You right now, all the things that have happened in your past, they, they make you that wise or that good person that you are right now. And if you like who you are, right now is the part that's important because the future is, is you're going to be going places with a lot of potential. Well, that's very well said, Dan. I think all of us sometimes are our own worst enemy, if you would. You know, we kind of uh, paint ourselves into a corner where there's no way out. Well... The the problem is is when it's not when we we make a good decision or a bad decision. It's the, the worst problem is is when we we're just kind of hesitating. We just kind of get caught in that rut. We don't know whether to go forward or go back or whatever. That's when we get to get taken advantage of. That's when things don't go well for us at all. It's better to just jump ahead and make a mistake, because then you can correct it. But if you don't make any if you don't make any choices at all, you're stuck. So it's a spiritual battle. Well, you could say it's a spiritual battle, but even if you're, you know, even if you're not a, what you think is a spiritual person, you're still, you know, you're out there deciding whether you're you're helping people or whether you're you're or helping yourself or, or whether you're going to just, you know, get in somebody else's way. And most people go around in kind of an isolated lethargy, you know, where they're just kind of they think they're they're, they're they think they're all by themselves, but they're not. The world is, you know, out there, and they can they can interact with other people and that can spur them on to do great things. So it's all about the motive. I, th I think it's mostly about the motive, yes, because, you know, if if you decide, you know, that you want to do something, I think you, you, the only thing that's going to hold you back is you. you know, and, and if you say, you know, there's some people out there that hate, well, love conquers hate. Love is always more powerful than hate. It's just that sometimes it seems like it moves slowly. If you love more, you, hate will just kind of dissolve or, or disappear in front of you. Tell us a little bit about some themes of your short stories. One of the stories is called A Crooked Man. A crooked Man sounds like someone that's, that's really maybe evil. In this case, the, the Crooked Man is, is very, very honest. He starts out as a handicapped person. And the doctor just says he's a crooked little fellow because he has a bad ankle or a bad foot. But he uses that to, to his own advantage. He goes, he goes into school. He, he learns to overcome, overcome his handicaps. He goes to sports, and that becomes a, an asset also. He, first, he goes into a job. He becomes a lawyer. He's known as the crooked lawyer, but, but he's the most honest lawyer around. And he goes from then he's, he's able to, uh, to the little crooks 
He's defend, he gets goes to the point where he defends crooks, but they don't like being uh, necessarily in uh, in his area. They don't like to do bad things in his area because they think he sees through them. And so, but they support him, and they find out that sometimes they can turn to the good and still make profits and everything, and they're okay with that. He goes from uh, being a lawyer to a politician, and so he becomes a crooked politician. Now, the people that are behind all this, and they're behind him going into the politics and everything, their motives are not very good. But because this part, because the crooked man continues on and tries to do things the way he believes, he stands with his, his convictions, because he stands with, with those, he's able to, to get a grassroots support, and he goes way beyond what, he, what anybody thought he could do. And I kind of left it open-ended at the end because we have a lot of political races going on and we have we always seem to have those. And yet people have to decide, you know, are they just going to stand by and watch? Are they going to make choices too? And sometimes they need to find out someone that, that knows what they want, you know, find a candidate that knows what he wants and go go after things. That's what kind of what that one's about. It, it's, it's actually a, a fun book. And I think you might, as some of the reader would enjoy parts of it just for the fun of it. But on the other hand, it's something that they could really put a lot of thought into and find out that it's, it's actually has a lot of wisdom behind parts of it. Could you read one of your poems? I could. Um, let me read um, Condemned for Loving Too Much. All was quiet in this forgotten town. A record snow was tumbling down. Yet in the plaza, crowds were shopping still, looking for entertainment to get their fill. There were walkers and talkers, shops all ablaze, restaurants still open but countless delays. Marge was waiting patiently and talking to a friend. The day had been perfect. She didn't want it to end. Somehow she noticed him standing away from the crowd, his gray eyes fixed on her, haughty and proud. His soft brown coat, his lean frame, the thin twisted nose. Why she alone could see him, she could only suppose. His eyes asked questions which seemed to strip her bare. What kind of man was he? One who didn't care? Was he an angry ghost or a demon of some kind? Why was his thoughts penetrating her mind? Somehow in his hands he held her new fate. She thought, is it possible to love someone you hate? As this thought surfaced, Marge pushed it away. She had never seen him before, not until today. He is not attractive, she thought, not in the least. Yet his eyes devoured her as if she were a feast. Her face flushed and deep within her, and deep within the heat began, rising in waves until perspiration ran. Feeling uncomfortable, she needed time to think. His eyes locked on her. Not once did he blink. Is it possible to love your enemy, she thought. What is it about me that's so eagerly sought? She was 33 years old, for goodness sake. Ten pounds too heavy, give or take. Yet she was flattered by his attention even more. Unlike her friends, all her faults he chose to ignore. He willed her to move forward, but he didn't insist. She closed her eyes as if helpless to resist. Silently, Marge turned, her demon she faced. When he smiled, her legs trembled, her heart raced. She took one step forward, two, then three, unbuttoned her blouse, letting him see. She hated him, but with strength from above, her body yielded to his mind, and she melted into love. Seeking his hatred, contempt, contempt, his crimes to pay, doing what she could, loving his hate away. 
An act of love determined Marge's fate. Is it possible to love someone you hate? All is quiet again in this forgotten town, but there is one less demon standing around. No one wants to question or be out of touch. Should Marge be condemned for loving too much? So you leave the reader with a question, and the reader can make his own decisions. I don't want to you know, choose. Actually, when I wrote the story, I'm not sure that I like the where it went or anything. It kind of went on its own. And then I found out that you know a lot of people like that um, the, the question, and I, I found out that that was beginning began to grow on me too because you know. Can love overcome evil? You know, that's what I said earlier, and I wasn't quite sure that it could all the time, but I came to the, to, to the conclusion that it can. But, you know, I, I do leave the readers a lot with, with their own thoughts, and, and I want them to think for themselves. So you want the reader to decide whether each character is good or evil at the conclusion of the story. You leave it up to them, and I guess that is thus the, if you will, the magic of the story whether it's through prose or the poem. Uh, the poem, certainly uh, a lot of emotions in that poem that you just read to us and a lot of images in our mind. Yes. And, and I'm finding figures like that poem, there's some people that told me that they absolutely loved it, and there's other people that told me they hated it. And it, it, it could be brought into a complete story, for that matter. But, you know, this is a, just as kind of a short story in, in, in itself but I do think that people need to make their own decisions on you know, where they want to go with that you know, whether they're religious or not we've been talking with Dan Robertson he is the author of his book Devils or Angels the collection Dan is both a writer of prose and poems and thus his book is filled with, with both and with uh, a purpose to Make us think. I think that is your purpose. I think, you know, that, well, yes, I want you to make decisions and choices, you know, about, about what you think is important in life. You know, or if, if someone is hurting someone, does that make that person a bad person? And I would say, yes, if that person, if you make someone feel good, that would make you have, you'd be a good person. And, but sometimes, you know, the things that we do are judged by other people. And, that's not really what what I'm all about. You know, if if you can make someone feel good, I think you're doing good things. In the poem that I just read, you know, the the, the lady does something. You know, I mean, she changes that demon into something good. So, was that is she a good person or a bad person? Dan, what's the best way to get your book, Devils or Angels? Well, it's on Amazon. I noticed it's on Amazon Books. You can get it there, or you can get it at iUniverse. It's also there, and I hope to have a website that I will be able to sell, or you be able to get this book and, and a couple of other ones. Yes. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you for inviting me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life. 
to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Hello, I'm Casey Coomer. The book Model Coach, a common sense guide for coaches of youth sports by Daniel L. Cedar. Dan, how are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Great, great. Now, how did you come to write this book? Well, the, the short version is it's, it's really about leaving a lasting legacy. Um, uh, the long version is, and again, I'm just having a little fun with you here, but it, it, as I started thinking about what I wanted to do as I grew up in life and, and, and moved on in life, and, and before I left this life, I thought, you know, what's something I can do that will leave a lasting impression behind me, leave a legacy? And um, I've always admired people that wrote books, books that I read today that since they moved on from this world, and, and it dawned on me that, you know what, I should write a book of something I'm passionate about that hopefully will also leave a lasting impression for others. What motivated you to write that book? Well, you know, what's interesting, in the, in the business I'm in right now, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a business coach, I'm a consultant, I'm, I'm an owner, a part owner of a, of a small business firm that does consulting. And uh, ironically, um, part of the idea for this book idea came out of attending one of our own internal development processes. And so um, during the course of doing that, and that's why this legacy thing came up, um, I had to make a decision on how I wanted to leave a legacy. And when the book idea came up, the next biggest decision I had was, what do I write about? I mean, you know, who am I to, to, to write a book about something? But it dawned on me that uh, something of this nature, I've, I've been born around sports, I've played sports, I've officiated sports, I've coached sports, and I continue to do so to this day. And it just made sense that I can find something in the area of sports that I can speak to. And, and, and what I thought back about is I thought back about all those great coaches that influenced me over the years, the coach that influenced me to, to work harder, try better, get better work ethic and those things, um, it just dawned on me. I, I needed to do something to help reinforce more and more coaches took into account the lasting impact they had on not only the players they coached, but the parents of the players that they coach. And so that's how I ended up landing on this book, this title, this topic. Who do you feel this book appeals to and why? You know, as far as the appeal for this book, I, my hope is that it, it, every youth coach out there, every, any youth sports-related coach out there would, would find value in this. Um, and not just the traditional sports, not just the baseball, football, basketball, hockey kind of traditional stuff. I'm talking even the martial arts coaches, the, uh, you know, obviously volleyball is a pretty major sport in soccer as well, but um, anything that's even, even cheer, th- these days there are a lot of cheer teams and cheer squads, and, and, and all those things are team-based, and there are coaches that are leading younger people in developing them on some skills, and, and I think in every one of those cases, I think those coaches can find value in how they approach their this youth, their, their students, their, their team members, or whatever they call them. Um, so I hope that's one of the, the, the people that this, this is um, important to and really uh, would like to see something. Also, the parents. Um, many parents have come to me already and said, you know what, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to get a book from you to give to uh, the coach for my daughter's team or my son's team 
um, just as a, partly as a thank you and partly as a, as a way to, to encourage them to keep getting better as a coach because they really valued them. So those are a couple different things that come to mind. Well, that's great. What is one thing you'd like readers to take away from your book? Ooh, that's a, that's a loaded question. One thing. Wow. Um, I alluded to it a little bit, but you know, and I'm gonna, I'm just going to be honest here. I'm not going to stick to one. It's impossible. That's fine. Um, but the one thing I would stress is what I alluded to is I really want every coach of any activity to really realize the impact they have on the youth that they're coaching, the long-term impact. Now, with that said, I still believe the concepts within the model coach book is each each concept itself has its own merit. So unless you want me to go into all five of those those pieces right now, you know, does that kind of give you an idea for what I was thinking? Sure. Actually, let's go into the five W's. How about that? We'll start with the five W's, and then we'll we'll press into the Enneagram model. You bet. Well, the, the five W approach. I'm a firm believer in that. In doing anything, there shouldn't be just one party that is advantaged. Not not just one person wins. So in the process of writing this book and, and the intent behind the book it made me stop and realize there's a lot of wins that occur here. Um, obviously, as I just mentioned, I hope one of the wins is that, uh, that a coach themselves has a better experience as a coach, and it, it helps them continue coaching because they enjoyed it and they found value in it and they found satisfaction in it. So, so one of the wins is that the coach should be advantaged by this book. Obviously, as I mentioned, the, the players should be advantaged by the book. They should have a better playing experience uh, to the point where – a, I hope the players want to return the next season to whatever sport they're playing in, and B, if they don't, that they at least stay active in some kind of activity. And I bring this up because we've all had those coaches over our lifetime, perhaps, sometimes teacher, sometimes neighbors, that have had a really bad influence on us and caused us to not want to do something. Well, I want all players to want to continue participating. Um, I also believe, as I mentioned, I think, the, I think the parents will be advantaged by it because they're going to enjoy the fact that their, their child has been treated well, has learned, developed, and, and their parents should have a good experience. Um, in fact, back to your previous question, one of the things I really promote heavily in the book beyond the five W's that we're going to – in the model itself is um, the fact that every coach should have a parent meeting multiple times with parents because often parents have no idea what's going on. And because they don't, issues creep in, and I'll, we can cover that later. Um, another win that comes to mind here, and, and I did this early on when I first started the book, is, is I took proceeds from each book sold and gave it back to other local charities. And so um, early on, I gave my monies to a couple of local charities. One was a teammates, a youth mentoring process in our community. Um, and then another one was a sports council that reinforces youth activity. And so I gave them money to provide for youth scholarships that couldn't afford the entry fees for different running events, as an example. And so those are just another, another one of the wins that I wanted to reinforce. Um, so anyway, I think that, that kind of gives you the feel for the five W's. And any other questions on that? Uh, no, sir. Let's go to the five key points related to model. What would you like to know? Uh, from the top, please. You bet. Well, when I did the initial research on this book, I knew I wanted to write it about coaching youth sports, but I really didn't know what the content was going to be or how to position it. And so it was neat when, after I interviewed, and I look back through my notes, I think it's 20, 30, 40 different coaches. I actually interviewed one-on-one, gathered some notes, and I was looking for theme areas. And what was neat is when I came down to this, I ended up with about 13 different themes and as I took those 13 themes and started just kind of tweaking them and pairing them up and putting them together, the word model almost naturally came out. 
And, you know, I saw mode in there, and, and, and all of a sudden, like, wait a minute, model, model coach. That's perfect because, really, this is about helping a coach not only be a model for their players and their parents, but also to then have some tendencies related to the model that would help them. So the first one that's very important is the, is the M in model, and that is we want every coach to realize the importance of mentally preparing for their season, for their practices, for what they're going to tell the parents, and, and this goes back to my earlier point in that we want people to really come into this realizing as a coach, they are influencing many people, players, parents, fans in general. They're also influencing the other teams they're playing against, if they're a good model. And frankly, they're, they're affecting the, the officials and the officiating of the thing as well. And again, being a former official, there's coaches that definitely rubbed off on me in a positive way as well as negative. So M is mentally prepare. The O stands for organizes. So it's one thing to mentally prepare, nothing to organize. And organize isn't just doing it all on your own. It's getting with your team of coaches and planning out what we're going to do this season, planning out what we're going to do this week, planning out what we're going to do this, this, this practice. And between mentally preparing and organizing, those two things going together, what I find is when parents are watching your practices, See, most coaches think it's all about how we perform in the game. But I'm here to tell you, most parents see more about their team and their coach through the practices. And if you ever watched a practice that was extremely disorganized, where kids are standing around doing nothing for long periods of time, and then you see a different coach that, that basically keeps kids active almost constantly, it's amazing not only in the development of the kids the difference, their confidence is so much different. They perform better. They do tend to win more games. It doesn't guarantee winning, though, but they do tend to perform and compete at a higher level, and a lot of it's because the coach wasn't organized in the first place. So those two really go together quite well. Now, beyond that, though, and here's what often happens. The, the third item, the third letter is D, which stands for develops every player, and I'll be the first to admit as a coach, I've been caught on occasion – writing off a player, thinking that they don't care, thinking that there's no hope for them. I mean, I'm human. You know, it, it takes more work. But what I've found out is if I can put some methods in place as a coach to make sure that every player gets attention, then I'll guarantee you every player does develop. But I have to adopt the mentality of developing every player versus what I've seen with some coaches out there. They give it to their best player on the team, whatever it is, they, they let them pitch, they let them be play quarterback. They, you know, they let them lead the, the their team in golf, whatever. But sometimes we get so focused on that one person that makes us look good and win, and we never develop the other team members to really truly create a team. So that develops every player is something that I reinforce with every team I coach. Um, in fact, we we put in place some mentoring of what I call some at risk players. Because let's face it, we've all seen the players that are naturally gifted. Those, those kind of players, they just need time to practice. But there's a few players out there in every team, I believe, that I've seen, that is that, that quiet kid, it's the shy kid, it's the kid that maybe hadn't played the sport before and had no one to really, maybe a parent didn't really teach them much. And, and let's face it, they feel intimidated. So one of our philosophies under develop every player is I always, we, we, we identify those players early on and the coaching staff each volunteers to take under their wing one of those players and mentor them give them attention, help them build their confidence. And it's amazing when the year comes to a close that some of those same players are nearly as good as the naturally gifted athletes. Now, I've been kind of rambling for a while here. Is it okay to continue? Yes, please do. You bet. Um, the E, so I hit the M, O, and the D. The E comes into encourages. 
Now, this word is very simple, and at the same time, I want to reinforce something here. This is not about being 100% positive. And in the book, if you read this, it, it talks about different ratios. And, and I'll be the first to admit, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in psychology, but I will say this, is I've read enough literature through my business and coaching other adults and enough literature on how many repetitions it takes to learn things that the philosophy we approach in coaching youth sports is, and it's going to happen, for every time we have to correct a player, hey, you jumped off sides on football, for every time we have to correct somebody, then I tell the coaching staff, it's our job to find four positive things after that to make sure they, they feel like they're being valued, heard, and understood, um, and they don't feel so bad about making the mistake. Because let's face it, no matter what sport we play, we all will make mistakes. And with that said, if we find that we're encouraging people at a level of at least four to one for every discouragement, the encouragement, um, I, I've been amazed at how positive the team acts toward each other and how positive the coaches are toward each other, how positive the parents are with the coaches and the players. So it applies to all of us. So encourages is a very powerful section, and there's a lot more in depth in that, but uh, at least that's a piece of it there. I just want to reinforce it's how do we develop these individual players to become better? And, and by definition, that means they're going to have to make mistakes, learn, grow, and change, but we also have to manage their negative interactions with us to the positives. We definitely want a lot more positives. And the last one, L, is kind of the obvious one, and, and it, it really encapsulates everything I just shared, and, and it it's leads by example. And, and the key here is, you know, in any given moment as a coach, I can tell the parents I'm going to split up the playing time equally. And they're going to watch me, and as long as I stay consistent and true to what I told them, then they're often very satisfied. doesn't mean they won't be frustrated on occasion, but they'll at least be, hey, he, said, he did what he said he was going to do. So this whole thing about leading by example is, as a coach, be careful what you say, because everything you say, you better full be prepared to follow up on, live by, and, and act upon. And, and I found when I do that, including when I tell parents, hey, if I have an issue with you or your child, we'll address you directly, and I do it. While they don't like it at the moment, they will often come back later and say, thank you, because you told me it could happen. We appreciated it. Glad you did it. You followed through on your commitment. So even committing to act on negative things is a good form of leading by example. The book, Model Coach, A Common Sense Guide for Coaches of Youth Sports, by Daniel L. Cedor. Now, Daniel, how would you introduce this book to a friend in a few sentences? In a few sentences? I would say, have you ever seen a coach that just scared you, upset you, uh, frustrated you to no end? Uh, if so, this book is about helping minimize that from happening. Um, the other version of that I would give was, uh, if you ever had a, a, a son, a child, or even a, you know, it could be a grandson or nephew that you've seen have a really bad experience playing in a sport so they quit, well, this book will help address how to keep that from happening. What was one of the most challenging parts about writing this book? The most challenging part was finishing it. <laughs> getting it done i guess <laughs> you know in a sense that's true i you know the, here's the cool part and, and and i had to in a sense i had to use my own my own methodology and i to hold myself accountable to this because i i've been dabbling with the book for about a year or so and, and i and i, I and to this day i love the concept because it's so real and it's so relevant and i think it always will be but the reality is is there's so much information out there that i had compiled so much information data research 
through my researching, through interviewing, there's so much stuff. The hardest part was really narrowing it down to the, the crux of the message and keeping it clear, clean, and I really wanted to keep it as simple as possible. And when you add that criteria on top of this mass of information, that was daunting. So finally what I did is I, I do what I tell, our, I tell our clients to do at Leadership Resources, and that is, you know, if you need to get something done, tell others that you're going to do it and ask them to help hold you accountable to it. So uh, one day out of the blue, I was frustrated with myself, not making enough progress, and I finally told a group of our clients that, hey, here's the deal. Between now and I gave them about a four-month window, uh, between now and this date, uh, I want you to help hold me accountable. I want to have this manuscript written. Because I knew once the manuscript was done, the rest would be a lot easier. And so that was the key for me getting at least off the dime and squeezing down all this content into this. Um, and as I mentioned uh, previously on the, on the acronyms model, that uh, once those came into clear view for me, it really helped me then streamline and narrow this down. Because I wanted to have a book that reads quickly and yet reads with some good, rich content. And so I borrowed a, a concept that I picked up from a book called Good to Great that many people probably have read if you've been out in the business world. I loved the idea that they had where you give the content and then a one or two page summary of what was in the content. So for those people that are impatient readers like I am, you can just read the last two pages of each chapter and get a great idea of the book's ideas and always go back for more if you want it. That's great. Is there anything we haven't covered you feel is important for your audience to know? Wow, that's a great question. You know, I'm going to circle back to a little bit of what I shared earlier, just sure. a few things. And, and that is, as a coach, we have a lot of responsibilities. It's not just organizing the practice. It's not just getting the team on the field. It's not just getting to look good. It's really all those things and then some. And so the part I just want to reinforce to every coach out there is, Take seriously your role. I mean, in a sense, you're a teacher. Um, a coach, by definition, is getting more out of an individual player than they would have gotten from themselves. So we're, we're inspiring other people. We're creating motivation within them to step up to a higher level. And at the same time, I still think most coaches forget that they're not just coaching the players. They're also coaching the coaches, each other. They're coaching the parents. And they're also coaching the fans because there's grandparents, brothers, sisters, and other siblings that get involved. And, and again, I, I don't want to make a coach sound like they're, the, you know, they're, they're the, the answer to all the world's problems. I will say, though, that a coach has a significant influence on a lot of people, and I just don't think they think of it that way. So I would just encourage every coach to take a bigger picture view of their role and, and really take it seriously. And that's why this book outlines all these concepts and tips and tools to help them get there. The book, Model Coach, A Common Sense Guide for Coaches of Youth Sports, by Daniel L. Cedar. Daniel, thank you very much for being here with us today. No, my pleasure. Thank you. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.